Genesis chapter 1. Been working through a series on biblical foundations and have spent quite a bit of time here at the very beginning of, of Genesis 1. Last week, we took some time to, <clears throat> to think through the nature of the days being described in the creation week. And we did so in part because there are people out there who are arguing that these are not normal days, these are not literal days. And I, I think often doing so in ways that end up undermining the teaching of what God's word says. And maybe as we went through that last week, you thought, this seems crazy. I've never thought anything other than the fact that this, these were literal days. Uh, why would we need to even deal with something like this? And, and I would simply say, I'm thankful that you have that confidence, but that doesn't change the fact that there are a lot of people out there <clears throat> that are uh, teaching truths contrary to that. And last week, we, we focused on the issue of, of the days. I mentioned there's other aspects that come into play as well. One of those is the nature of creation. How did God make the world? And there are people out there that are, are trying to, to say that God made the world through uh, the use of evolutionary processes. There's two kind of broad uh, approaches that people take. Uh, you don't have to remember these, but just uh, so you've heard them and can think of them. Uh, the first is theistic evolution. Theistic evolution is simply saying God kind of set the, the process going. He created the original uh, Big Bang. He, he set it in place so that through the process of mutation and natural selection, eventually we'd get to the world which we have today. And so it's evolutionary processes at the very beginning of it all, behind it all, was ultimately God. But he just purely used evolutionary processes throughout. There's a second category that is uh, sometimes called progressive creationism. And the difference is, in progressive creationism, occasionally God steps in and creates something directly. And so a lot of it's evolutionary processes, but sometimes it wouldn't work, and so he steps in and he makes something. And, and I want us to begin to look through Genesis chapter 1 and begin to think through whether or not that's the case. And before we do that, I came across a quote from Charles Spurgeon this week that I thought was very helpful in thinking through this issue. Because you have people in our day uh, who are saying, you know what, science really says certain things, and so we need to be very careful about being dogmatic about what God said in Genesis 1. We need to leave room for people to disagree uh, because the science is really settled on this. And what's interesting is that's not the first time anyone's ever said that. In fact, people were saying the same thing in Spurgeon's day. And this is his response to that. We are invited, brethren, most earnestly to go away from the old-fashioned belief of our forefathers because of the supposed discoveries of science. And what is the science? The method by which man tries to conceal his ignorance. It should not be so, but so it is. You are not to be dogmatical in theology, my brethren. It is wicked. But for scientific men, it's the correct thing. You are never to assert anything very strongly, but scientists may boldly assert what they cannot prove and may demand a faith far more credulous than any we possess. Forsooth, you and I are to take our Bibles and shape and mold our belief according to the ever-shifting teachings of so-called scientific men. What folly is this? 
why the march of science, falsely so-called, through the world may be traced by exploded fallacies and abandoned theories. Former explorers once adored are now ridiculed. The continual wreckings of false hypotheses is a matter of universal notoriety. You may tell where the learned have encamped by the debris left behind of suppositions and theories as plentiful as broken bottles. And so where are we putting our confidence? We have to put our confidence in what God has said. And that's what we're seeking to do as we work through the book of Genesis. Now, as we look through Genesis chapter 1, some have said that biblical creationists wrongly come to Genesis chapter 1 and focus on how God created. They said that's not really what Genesis 1 is about. Genesis 1 is not about how God created. It's about the fact that God created. And they miss the truths that, that say that God is the creator by focusing on how he created. And yet, as we read through Genesis 1, I think it actually says both. It teaches us things both about how God created and that God created. And we shouldn't highlight one over the other. We need to think about both. And that's, Lord willing, what we'll try to do this evening as we work through just the first three days of the creation week. And and we may not even get through all of that. We'll see. So let's begin in Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. One day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Now, you may not remember this, but several weeks ago, when we first looked at Genesis 1 and verse 1, I argued that this is the initial act of creation. This is part of day one. That at the beginning of day one, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, what we find is the state of the heavens and the earth in this initial creation. We don't have time to, to really delve into this. Uh, there were people, there are still people today, who argue that there's kind of a a disjunction between verse 1 and verse 2. That perhaps in verse 2, we, we find the state of the earth after a long period of time. Initially, God made the heavens and the earth. Then something happened, perhaps eventually leading to God judging the earth. And so it's now left in the state of verse 2. But I'll, I'll simply say this for now. 
Um, there's, there's other reasons that I think that's a wrong interpretation, but, but one of the biggest is the very beginning of verse 2 actually begins with a word that would be best translated now. Now the earth was formless and void. And, and I highlight that because it's, it's really the kind of word that tells us the circumstances of the previous phrase. It's not saying, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then the earth became formless and void. It's saying, now this earth that he just created was formless and void. And so what's actually being described here? What's describing this initial state of the heavens and earth? It's formless and void. Uh, different ways that people have tried to, to get at what those words are saying. Uh, a common way that people have described this is unformed and unfilled. Or uninhabitable and uninhabited that it's not set up yet for people to live in, and there's no one in there. And so it's without form and it's empty. This is the state of creation. The second phrase in verse 2, darkness is over the surface of the deep. While darkness can have the idea of judgment in Scripture, it doesn't necessarily mean judgment. A God is the one who creates darkness. A darkness is part of what he has made. Uh, Psalm 1811 says this, he made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds. And as part of the creation week, darkness is described by God ultimately as good. And so the reason darkness is mentioned here is not because it's a sign of judgment, but because God has not yet made light. And so all that there is, is darkness. And yet, at the very end of the verse, we find God preparing to act through his spirit. The spirit of God is moving over the surface of the waters. The earth is not acting on itself. God is acting upon the earth. God is the one who's moving. God's the one who's driving things in this whole creation account. And so the next step of day one of creation, we find in verse three, the creation and separation of light and darkness. Then God said, let there be light. And in this first day, we, we find really the pattern that's found throughout this. And almost every day, you have five things that happen. You have God's statement, then God said. And then what he says, let there be this. And then you have the result, and there was this. And then you have God's evaluation of it. God saw this, and it was good. And then you have the conclusion. It was evening and morning, one day or the second day, and so on. And I mentioned last week that evening and morning is, is a transitional statement. It's taking us from the end of day one into the next day of day two. In this first day, we see God speaking and things happening. Where did creation come from? The answer is it came from the word of God. Psalm 33, 6 says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their lights. Verse 9, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood firm. For Hebrews 11 and verse 3, by faith we understand that the world has been created by the word of God. So that what is seen, the material world, has not been made out of things that are visible. It came from God. It didn't come from itself. And it came as a result of God speaking. God speaks and it happens. And on the, this aspect of day one, 
what he creates is light. God speaks, and there is light. Now, I, I've been doing a little bit of reading in, in preparation for both this week and next week, thinking about the issue of light. And, and I confess, I am not a scientist. I'm certainly not a physicist. You know what's fascinating? As best as I understand the, the state of the study right now, people are still trying to figure out exactly what light is. Because sometimes it acts like a particle, and sometimes it acts like a wave, and it has characteristics of both. And, and the common consensus seems to be right now, it's both a particle and a wave, and it kind of manifests different aspects of both of these things, which ultimately leads me to say, we don't even understand light having studied it for thousands of years. And God spoke and just brought it into existence. That God creates the kinds of things that still are beyond our comprehension just by the word of his mouth. He speaks and there is light. And what is the source of this light? Well, we won't get there this evening, but Lord willing, next week we'll see God makes the sun on day four. So where's the light coming from? The answer is God. God doesn't need the sun to make light. God doesn't need anything to make light other than himself. He speaks, and now there is light. And then God separates the light from the darkness, and we see something that happens very often in this account. God names these things. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And this naming of it really shows it's his. He owns it. Uh, it's, we understand this on some level. If you discover something, you get to name it. If you create something, you get to name it. I shall call this whatever, you know, because I've brought this forth. And you don't get to name something you didn't really make. If I came and said, I'm going to say your name is now this, you'd say, you don't get the right to do that. But God gets to name everything. Because he's the one who made it and he's in charge. And so he calls light day. He calls darkness night. He's able to name these things because he is the one who's in charge. And in verse 4, we see his evaluation of these things. God saw the light was good. And over and over again, we see this point that God sees something. He's the one who interprets it. He's the one who decides whether or not something is good. He's the one who has the proper perspective on it. And when he declares something good, he's declaring it that way, I think, largely by saying it is accomplishing the right purpose. It's doing what I intend for it to do. And therefore, it is good. Because in some ways, we can't really know whether or not something is good unless we know what it's there for, what its purpose is. If I were to ask you, hey, is this piece of ham good? And you say, I don't know. I've been cleaning windows with it all day, and it doesn't seem to do a whole lot. And say, well, that's not really what ham is for. It's not going to be very good at cleaning windows. If you're asking, is the ham good? You're asking, is it taste okay? Is it, is it not spoiled? Does it actually provide nourishment if you eat it? Because that's what ham is for. And a ham that does that is good. And so throughout, we see this description of things being good, and I think being good for mankind. Does God need light? No. 
Psalm 139 says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God can see in the darkness. We need the light. So the light is good because it's creating a world which, which we can, in which we can live. And that's what God's really doing in days one to three. He mentioned at the beginning, this world that he initially created is unformed and unfilled or uninhabitable and uninhabited. And in the first three days, he is forming it. In the first three days, he's making it inhabitable. And so it's good now because there's light. It's now an opportunity for people in which they can live in this world. We move on now to day two in verse six. And then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. What is this expanse? You may remember the King James translation, a firmament. Uh, I think in part because of that translation, in part because of some other understanding, some people have posited that uh, what's being described here is a kind of canopy, a water vapor canopy that initially covered the earth. This canopy uh, would have been uh, an explanation given for why maybe the earth had uh, warmer temperatures all around the globe initially. Maybe this explains why people lived longer. <coughs> Excuse me. And then as well, that typically is argued that this canopy burst at the flood. And that's where the rain came from. And that's why afterwards people don't live as long. And I think good people, good men have taught that. My understanding is right now, most biblical creationists don't really hold to that theory. And one of the reasons why is because if you actually look at a, a model of a kind of water canopy that would envelop the whole earth, if it were to condense and come down in rain, the heat that would come from that condensation would actually boil the earth's atmosphere. And, and we don't really see it's explicitly taught in scripture that there's the canopy here. What's described is an expanse. And I think the best way to understand this is a stretched out issue. That's what an expanse is. That's really what the word points to. It's something that is stretched out. And so what we see is either the sky, generally speaking, that as you're standing here on earth and you're looking up and you see the expanse around you. And I think that's probably the best way to understand this because if we look through the rest of Genesis 1, we find that God sets the sun, moon, and stars in the expanse and that the birds fly in the expanse. I think the best way to understand it is it's, it's the sky. Potentially, it might be uh, pointing more to outer space, but it's an expanse. The question in part is then what's the waters above? I think we have a pretty good sense of what the waters below are because in the next day, he, he takes those waters and separates them from dry land. What are the waters above? And, and one answer people say is maybe it's the clouds. And I think that's possible. Another explanation is whatever the waters that were above, they're now at the edge of outer space because he's put the expanse between waters below and the waters that are above. Uh, exactly what that is, I don't know that I can say definitively. The point primarily here is God is separating these things. Just like he did in day one, he separated light from darkness. Now he's separating the waters below from the waters above. And God, again, names it. God calls the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. 
Now, maybe you've noticed this before, but maybe you haven't. Day two doesn't have God seeing it and saying, it's good. So why doesn't he say it's good? And some have said, well, even God can't really declare Monday's good. And so therefore, he could never say that day two was good. I think a better way to understand it is, is remember, what's good? Good is it's now set up for people to live in. And at this point in time, it's not really set up that way. All we have is the water separated, but we don't actually have it set up yet for life to live. And what you need is the first act of creation on the next day. And so we go to day three, and in day three, verse nine, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So now we have dry land. We have a place for people to live. And so now God's work of creation is, is now good. And yet there's more work that needs to be done. And the next work that needs to be done is the work of vegetation. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plant yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit of their kind with seed in them. And it was so. And in many ways, this is the, the climactic act of the first three days of creation. That now God has made a room, he's made a place in which the world can live. There's light, there's land, there's water, and there's food. It's now set up for people to live in. It's formed, it's inhabitable. So that in the next three days, he can begin to fill these places. He can begin to uh, make them inhabited. And interestingly, notice how he creates these plants. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plant yielding seed and fruit trees in the earth, bearing fruit of their kind. And then verse 12, and the earth brought forth vegetation. And so it seems as if he grows them from the soil. <coughs> he doesn't take them and like place them on the earth. They sprout up. And so in some ways you could think of if you had like a time-lapse picture of flowers growing, only it's actually not a time-lapse. It's just happening in real time right before your eyes. These plants, these trees are all just sprouting up all around him. And then they're all there. And they're ready to bring forth their fruit. And I think there's some, some significance in the fact that, that God points to the earth doing this and points to the, the, the trees themselves as being fruitful. The plants themselves as bearing fruit. Because one of the great uh, false religions, one of the greatest false ideas uh, among Israel, when, when Moses was writing the Pentateuch, was what's called the fertility cult. And this was uh, idolatrous practices that were designed to uh, get the gods to become aroused so that they would have physical relations with each other. And by having those physical relations, that would then produce crops. And so where do you get crops? Well, you have to do certain practices, certain cultic practices, certain religious rituals in order to get the gods to do this. And God from the very beginning says, no, no, no. I set it up so that they would do this. I made it so that the earth would produce fruit and then these trees 
and vegetation would produce after their own kind. So we don't need to worry about those things. The gods aren't behind it. Already set it in place. And so it's going to happen in connection with my work. And yet again, we, we see consistently throughout this, God is setting boundaries. Light and day are distinct from each other. The water above, the water below are to be separated. The dry land and the water is to be separated. And even the vegetation and plants are separated according to their kinds. He's setting up distinct divisions throughout all of these things. And so as we look at the first three days, what conclusions can we begin to draw about both how did God create and also what does this teach us about the fact that God did create? So first, how did God create? What's the nature of God's creation? Let's say first we'd see that God's work of creation is supernatural. It wasn't using natural processes. He's speaking and things are coming to existence. Trees are growing, but they're not growing in the way they would normally grow. They're sprouting up immediately. They're producing immediately. Which means, in a sense, we, through our observation and through our scientific study, could not actually figure out how the world was formed. God would have to tell us these things. In a sense, that's what he's saying to Job in Job 38.3. Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. And the answer is, I can't understand. I can't figure it out on my own. I wasn't there. If I was there, God would have to tell me what's happening. I can't understand it apart from his interpretation. Not only was it supernatural, it was immediate. Throughout, what do we see? God said, let there be, and it was so. And it was so. It's not God said, let there be, and eventually over time, it kind of became this way. It's immediate. As well, God's work of creation is direct. God's the one who's creating. He's not using secondary means. He occasionally uses materials, but he's the one who's making. He's the one who's creating. And God's work of creation was functionally mature. Then when he creates vegetation and trees, they're ready to go. They're in place. You don't have to wait so that one day you might have an orchard here. It's already there. It's already producing fruit. It's already bearing seed. And so God's work of creation is described very clearly in Genesis 1 as having these kinds of characteristics, which would eliminate the idea that God used evolutionary processes. Because evolutionary processes are not direct. They're not immediate. They're not functionally mature. And so we do see how did God create, and we see that as God describes how he created that it does not match up with evolutionary theory. But what do we see about the fact that God created? And again, we see something I, I pointed out as we looked at verse one, but we see it over and over again in this chapter. God is the fundamental reality of the universe. As I saw one person point out, he's the subject of every sentence. And, and the objects are other things. He's the driving force. He's the focus. He's the one who's listed over and over and over and over again in this chapter. 
Because this world is ultimately not about itself. This world is ultimately pointing to its creator. But again, we see that the material world is good. There's so many belief systems, there's so many worldviews out there that try to minimize the created world. They try to say spiritual things are good, but our bodies are, are, are evil. And we even see this in our day. I'm someone trapped in a different kind of body. I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. My body is not something that is to be embraced. The material world is not something to be embraced. And yet, Scripture would say it is. The physical world is good because God made it. Third truth we see is that God is a God of order and design. I mentioned people try to argue that this is poetic, and I don't think this is poetic at all, but I think it is pointing to great uh, structure in how God makes things. That with the days, it is clear he, he has order, he has design behind these things. He's not haphazardly moving about, but he's carefully crafting a world so that people could live in it. And then the next three days, we'll see he begins to fill the earth. We see as well that God is the supreme authority. He's the one who gets to name things. And he is the judge. He sees things. And he separates things. And he sets up boundaries. And he decides what is good and what is not good. And once he makes the declaration, that's the declaration. And part of what we see in this chapter is a pushback against the, what's common among pagan belief systems. That in this, we see the distinctions between one thing and another. You have light, and it's not darkness. You have the water's below, and it's separate from the waters above. You have the dry land, it's separate from the earth. You have certain plants that are different kinds from other plants. And so these things ultimately aren't all connected. These things are ultimately mixed together. This actually serves as the foundation of logic. The fact that X is not, at the same time, also not X. Something's both not true in itself and false at the same time. Because things are separate from each other. Things are distinct from each other. And we see in the very creation, God bringing these truths out. Finally, I want to close just by considering three ways in which other passages of Scripture point back to what we've seen in the first three days of creation. There's several passages we could point to. I just want to highlight three briefly. And the first is 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, in which Paul connects the new creation, God's work in making people new and bringing dead people to life and points it back to his initial act of creation. In which he says in 2 Corinthians 4 and 6, for the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Who made the world? God did when he spoke. Who made a believer? Who made the new man? God did when he spoke. There was darkness and what needed to happen? There needed to be light. And there's darkness and unbelief. And what needs to happen? We need light. And how did this come about? Well, John 1 also points to creation. It describes when Jesus enters the world, what happens? Well, in him, verse 4 of John 1, in him was life. And the life was the light of mankind. 
and the light shines in the darkness. When Jesus entered the world, in a sense, God said, let there be light. And then finally, Psalm 121. I will raise my eyes to the mountains. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Because this is our God. Our God is the one who made all these things. Therefore, we can say, he will not allow your foot to slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Behold, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your protector. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not beat down on you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time and forevermore because our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you not only made heaven and earth, but you continue to sustain it and that you continue to communicate to your creation. Thank you that we can rest in you. We pray these things in your son's name.